Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Marla Alpert. They are a trans femme envy and an actor, singer, a lover of all things theater, and I'm really excited to get to know her. So Marla, why don't you tell us a little bit more about you? Hi. Uh, yeah, I'm Marla. Um, she, they pronouns. Um, I am um, an actor and a singer. Um, most recently, i am become an activist for transgender rights in um, media, um, mostly theater. Uh, you can find me on TikTok. I'm sure there'll be a bio or a, a link or a name or something somewhere in the description. Um, and, um, yeah, that has been the majority of my internet life is talking about theater and how lack of trans representation affects the trans community. And I do that through occasionally comedy, occasionally, um, maybe calling people out or doing lectures. There's a variety of things, uh, that I do on my TikTok. Um, I only started transitioning during the pandemic. Um, I started socially transitioning about a year ago and medically transitioning um, about eight to nine months ago. Uh, I started hormones. Uh, and I did not realize at that time how bad transgender representation was, especially in the theater. I knew it wasn't good. That's why I held off um, on transitioning until my 30s, my early 30s, because I had built this career and this persona, and I had been taught this is the box you live in for the rest of your life. And, well, the truth is... I was unhappy, and after my profession had theater had collapsed three times in my lifetime, twice in my professional lifetime, I realized this was not something worth giving my sense of self up for. Um, so I started transitioning. And now I'm right back to trying to get back into my career. So I share that journey uh, on my TikTok when I can and advocate for others. Um, for those who are unaware of the current issues within theater and entertainment when it comes to transgender people, theater specifically has a severe lack of transgender actors being put on large stages, especially in principal roles. In addition to that, there are almost no transgender roles in theater, especially in musical theater. In the cases that there are, the rare example being the recent uh, Jagged Little Pill. Jagged Little Pill is kind of what got my TikTok moving in the first place talking about the show. Um, there was a transgender character that was erased and uh, appropriated and played by a cis woman who won a Tony 
for it of all things. Um, so it's terrible all around. Representation, I do believe to be one of the most important things to getting transgender people uh, normalized, to getting rid of stigmatization, um, and then hopefully getting rid of violence against us and abuse and so on. People don't understand us because they don't see us. Um, and the other thing is, and I, I'll probably go into this later, maybe if uh, the question is asked, I, I also have issues. Um, theater likes to play into a lot of trans misogynistic tropes. That's things that affect only trans feminine people, because of course, Trans feminine people have to deal with not only transphobia, but misogyny as well. So, um, you know, a lot of people say things like transgender people are, are faking or whatever. And theater continues to do shows while there's no transgender representation. Shows like Tootsie, Doubtfire, Now a New Some Like It Hot, despite the transgender community asking them to stop. Um which push the idea that someone can pretend to be a different gender and to people who do not understand us, there's no difference. So the impact um, is negative towards us. And I just feel that maybe one day we can come back to those shows, but as long as transgender people are having hundreds of laws being written against them, um, being murdered at the rates that we are, it just cannot uh, continue anymore. And that makes a lot of sense. For shows like that, um, is it something that a trans person could play one of those roles without it being inherently problematic? So it's funny you say that because when I was first coming to terms with my transness as slow as it was. Um, there was a lot of time where I was like, let me do these roles almost like to, in a way to out myself, like let me do these roles. And when someone points out how problematic they are, I could be like, well, actually I'm trans. I'm, I think at the time I was like, I'm gender fluid or something. Um, but I don't think trans people should be playing them either. Um, because in that case, it would be a transgender, let's say a trans feminine person playing a cis man uh, pretending to be a woman. So it just, it continues the same um, tropes and the same uh, problematic ideas. Right. And I, I, I guess, I don't know what the word I'm trying to like look for is, but because you are like on hormones and you're in theater and like you might have to sing, how is all of that working? Like, is your vocal range changing that if you're, say, auditioning for something, you need to consider, well, in X amount of time, my voice could mm -hmm. be completely different? So that's the interesting thing. Uh, and a lot of people don't know this. Um trans feminine people their voices do not change from um 
hormones. People who are transmasculine, it does. The vocal cords can only grow thicker uh, from their original size. They can't shrink. Of course, um, some trans women, some trans feminine people get vocal cord shaves to make the voice higher, but after that, you really can't sing. Um, it's really not recoverable from a singing standpoint. Um, so that's actually my biggest issue right now. Trying to go back to musical theater, they are so unwilling to change keys and you know all that stuff um, for trans people. I think it's ridiculous because who, other than actual musical theater people, who in that audience is like, ooh, they took this down a third? Like, they, they don't know. General audiences don't have a goddamn clue. So uh, they're being, you know, sort of ridiculous and, as theater often is, pompous and elitist and we must do it this way. Um, now, I am fortunate. I'm fortunate and I'm unfortunate. As far as I am aware, most, if not all, of the trans feminine singers who have been successful as singers were at a time tenors, which means they have some upper range. I am not that. I am a baritone with some upper range. I'm unfortunate in that way, but I am fortunate in that I have an extremely rare countertenor, which is the head voice in the falsetto, um, going up into what is called the sopranist um, countertenor, up into you know the soprano range. Now, it does have a countertenor property quality to it, which I'm trying to rid it of, or at least as much as is humanly possible. And I'm trying to also connect it into my chest voice, uh, the baritone voice. So hopefully when this is all done, I'll have like a four and a half octave range is kind of the goal here. And I think the hope with that is not necessarily so much to be playing roles that are written already, but the hope is when new writers hear that voice and hear something new they can play around with, they'll want to write material for me which sucks because it's kind of like hey just wait just wait until someone does it for you wait until someone recognizes your talent then writes something then produces it and then it's successful then you have something to sing are there shows that do vary more in ranges that are open for more trans roles so not a ton um, because even for cis women, counter ten or sorry, not counter tenors, uh, contralto roles, that's the lowest female voice, um, or what traditional female voice in singing is not even very common in musical theater. Um, some newer stuff, especially stuff with jazz elements have it, uh, Town, for example, has a lot of low contralto parts. So that's kind of nice. Uh, that's kind of a, a decent place to break in. But in general, even just for cis women with low voices, it's difficult. There's certain shows 
out there, maybe not necessarily right now on Broadway, where there are like narrator characters where gender doesn't matter. Those are kind of more open to changing things and playing around with it. But um, I would say in general, no. And is there a dream role that you would love to play someday? Um, There's a couple. I mean, in reality, you know, most of my success, if it ever comes, is going to probably be through new works. But I would love to play Aldonza and Man of La Mancha. I have a whole long TikTok about why that's like the perfect transgender character. Um, and for so, I've always wanted to kind of do Drood in the mystery of Edwin Drood, which if a lot of people probably don't know the show, but um, it's going to be interesting because the char- it's a show within a show and it's a female it's a real life female actor playing a female actor in the show who's playing a pants role. So playing a male role. So there's a lot of levels there, especially when you add a trans person to the equation. Um, but it's a really, it would be a really interesting part to do. It's such a fun part. Um, and she slash he only sings when representing or presenting as the pants character drew the male character so if the voice had to be down a step or two it's really not that bizarre um shouldn't be bizarre anyway but perceptions by audiences can be um very narrow-minded and is that still the case that audience perception is narrow-minded even though the theater community tends to be more LGBTQ plus friendly or is perceived in that way sometimes? I really do think audience, it's hard to say who is narrow-minded. Is it the actual audiences or is it producers afraid that the audiences are going to be narrow-minded? And because I think producers can be the tastemakers if they wanted to. I just don't think they have the backbone for it, most of them. Um, so I do think to some extent it's the audiences because unlike... I think that the reason theater has the issues it has with this is because unlike TV and film, theater has to play to the audience that is coming to it. TV and film can go find its audience. Theater is stuck here. So we have tourists from states where they're trying to make, you know, transgender healthcare a crime, basically, especially for children. So to um, expect them to be accepting of transgender stories is really questionable. And it's not even just the transgender stories. You see, I think within theater, it feels sometimes like the only people out of outside of straight cis people, the only other people who somewhat who are somewhat normalized are cis gay men. We even see shows like Fun Home, where gay women characters, queer women characters are not um 
accepted or it doesn't do as well with audiences. So then what would be the ideal sort of show for proper representation? The ideal sort of show would be a show with a transgender lead, hopefully some other queer and transgender characters of various ilks and types. Um, And to me, I don't want the story to be all about trauma. Too many transgender stories jump right to they're a sex worker, they're on drugs, they're in poverty. And these are all things that transgender people face because of the stigmatization in society. But normalize us, let us see trans joy on stage so that people can see us as more than those things I just mentioned. Um, Because a lot of people only see us that way. That's why a lot of transgender people don't realize they're trans, uh, myself included, for a long time, because we only see, you know, transgender people being portrayed, especially trans women, being portrayed in media as a dead prostitute on CSI or Law and Order, whatever. Um, so it's just, and that's, let me always say this, like, I support sex work, but we should be seen as not only that, like that should not be the instant thought when you think trans person is sex worker. Um, Cause we live all sorts of lives. So I would say if we could see trans joy and get rid of some tropes and see that on stage, that would be the preference. That's completely understandable. Now you've talked a little bit about how, your transitioning journey happened or started during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, when theater was collapsing, um, and that, you know, you didn't necessarily even realize that that was, you know, where you were going. So can you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about what made you realize that you are trans? Yeah. Um, I should first say another reason I didn't realize I was trans was because in college i was put in a little box um right before i went off to college i did start to explore certain ideas about gender and then i got to college and i had this huge dramatic legit classical baritone voice um and they were like you have to be big brooding man character even though i was only five nine which also led me into a lot of like, oh, you sound great. You're acting great, but you're not big enough. Um, (laughs) I now am not so upset about not being big enough. Um, But the, that kind of, you know, when you're, you're in your early twenties and someone's like, you're really good at this. You go, I like being good at things. And you're like, this must be what I'm supposed to be doing. So that kind of like got me stuck there for a decade. and then during the pandemic, I had always had issues with myself, with my body, and I always took it as dysmorphia. Um, but 
when you add up all the pieces, when you're when I'm like in looking in the mirror, I'm like, wish my waist was smaller. Mm, I wish my shoulders were not so wide. Uh, I don't like my facial hair. Ooh, I wish my hairline was just like a little bit lower. Like never like putting all the pieces together. Um, but then with the pandemic, here I am. I mean, I had my partner, but she was working uh, from home. So I'd be around all day just staring at myself in the mirror being like, why? Why have I never liked myself? Um, and one day I remember seeing her who's very body positive, you know, sort of like jiving with herself in the mirror, like just being like, yeah, I look good. And like, look at me. And I was just like, wait, people can feel that way about themselves in the mirror. I didn't know that. I thought everyone feels the way I do when they look in the mirror. Um, so, I mean, she already knew that I had that I was like, I was always like, I'm gender fluid or non-conforming or, or something, but I'm never taking into real life because it'll ruin my career. Um, and then I watched Pose on Netflix. Here's a good example of how positive trans representation not only affects how the public sees us, but how we see us. I had never seen trans joy or community before that show. I cried like a baby after the first episode. I had to walk away from it for like two months. Still didn't understand what the hell was going on. Um, and then I came back to it. And I think with all of the dysphoria that I was experiencing, not realizing it was dysphoria because it usually showed up as depression and numbness rather than like actual like anxiety, like, you know, I want to jump out of my own skin. Um, I think my partner started to catch on. I, I literally, oh God, there was one time, still didn't know I was trans. I started to notice the fine lines on my head were getting worse. I, I used to work outside, so um, I had a couple and I was like, I never got to be young and pretty. Like I was having like a literal breakdown of like, I never got to be, I'm, I never got to be pretty. And now I'm getting, now I'm getting old. And it, I was still just not, not, none of that was making, none of it was adding up uh, to me, to everyone around me, my partner, especially, I'm sure it was. And then she pointed me to this subreddit uh, called egg IRL. Uh, if people don't know, an egg is how trans people refer to a trans person before they've realized they're trans or a trans person in denial. And once you realize you're trans, we say your egg has cracked. Um, so egg IRL is just memes of all of the sorts of dumbass things I would say to myself that, you know, to, to try to prove to myself I wasn't trans and seeing a bunch of other people recognize these ideas as being, you know, thoughts only a trans person would be having um, and seeing other people experience that, I went, oh, oh, okay, well, this is it, isn't it? And so outside of your partner, did you have support from the people around you? Yeah, um, not so much family, but um, my closest 
friend in the world and um his wife were two of the first people to know um they were very supportive she would uh when i was trying out new names she literally would um there's this show that she loves called the last five years it's popular amongst the musical theater crowd and there's a song called Shmuel's song that for some reason she loves. Can't figure out why, but she loves that song. She's not Jewish. I don't understand it. But um, she would offer to sing any name I wanted to try out. She would sing that song, but replace Shmuel with the name. And I was like, well, this is supportive. <laughs> like, I'm a bit embarrassed for both of us, but this is really sweet and supportive. Um then my co-host on my podcast, um, he was the first pe person in the business that I told about it. Um, and he basically said to me that I'll never reach my potential as an actor if I'm not myself. Um, so that kind of helped me a little bit on the professional side of it. And then I had a couple of other friends who were supportive, who I reached out and told um, and then I also have a good friend, um, who is non-binary and they did a national tour with me and came out a few years ago and came out about the same time I had started, um, hormones and I contacted them and I was like, Hey, like your journey and being so open about it, like inspired me a little bit to go through with this and from then on it also has inspired me to be open about my journey and visible with my journey so i owe a lot to them and you know we are close um trans friends now much closer than we ever were on tour well, and that's good to hear that you know you've had so many supportive friends throughout all of this now, are you willing to talk about sexuality and terms of yeah. like you and your partner and whether or not there had to be like additional conversations when you started transitioning? Yes. Um, well, my partner um, identifies as pan. So that was like on there and never going to be an issue. And I am still... Um, sapphic i mean i can still consider myself to be at this point it's so funny because it, it's funny within a lot of sections of the lgbt community if someone asks your sexuality you might have a different answer depending upon who's asking because you know like sometimes you still want to explain it to some people um so you know if a cis hetero person asks me what my sexuality is i generally am like lesbian because everyone gets that you know there's no more explanation i say everyone gets that but a lot of people don't realize that lesbian at least by today's definition usually means non-man loving non-man um but some people don't agree with that definition so i don't especially people who are not in the community they don't know that definition so i use lesbian there if i'm talking to someone who is not trans, but in the LGBT community, I'll say sapphic because they know what that means. And if I'm talking to a trans person who, you know, knows all of the tr 
trans identities and all the sexual identities um, under the sun generally is what I've discovered because, you know, there's a lot of self-exploration um, within, within our community. Uh, I usually use the term Neptunic, which means um, non, basically um, attracted to non-men. And, and what does sapphic stand for? Sapphic just means um, woman-loving or feminine-loving. So many different terms. And we were talking a little bit about this before we even started recording. Um, and so yeah. I like how you kind of have your, depending on how much you might understand, I will use yes. these different terms. Yes. And like, you know, if a, I feel if a trans person doesn't know what Neptunic means, I feel much more comfortable having a conversation with them about it because they are more likely to get it and not rebel or be like, well, that's not what I, you know. I don't get, like, you know, they'll be much more accepting and willing to have the conversation. Trying to explain to some, um, some cishet people, like, lesbian doesn't just mean, at least in a lot of current lesbian settings, doesn't just mean woman-loving woman. It means non-man-loving non-man. Right. Now, this is going to, like, veer off of what we were just talking about but this is how my brain works um are you still feeling that gender dysphoria when you look in the mirror yes um i definitely still have issues i mean i think what makes me not question myself is you know i'll look at old pictures of myself and or even pictures from earlier in my transition and i'll go well, that's not what I want to be. So we must be moving in the right direction. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, eight months, eight and a half months is not that much time for hormones to do the thing. They've done their thing in places, um, but there's definitely still a lot they can do. Probably they say usually five years before you like really stop seeing any changes in like a year and a half before you reach like where you're going to mostly get uh, with the hormones. Um, so I still have a while to go there. Um, there's certain things that still bother me about myself. Um, I don't like pulling my hair back cause I don't like my hairline. I mean, I have stuff that's being put on it to hopefully um, round it out a little. Um, I don't like my jawline. Um, that's more of a recent thing that I was like, this is not, I don't like this. Um, facial hair is currently being worked on. Um, I literally have electrolysis tomorrow. I've been doing laser for longer than I've even been doing hormones. Um, and then, you know, there, there's just like a lot of little things that add up um, that bother me. It's so funny because some people, you know, are like, you pass. You pass like, you kind of like have like a certain androgynous vibe to you, but you pass as being uh, a woman. And I don't see it 90% of the time. I think that's true for even a lot of trans people who've had female feminization surgery and years of hormones, sometimes they could be the most passing person in the world. 
and they can look in the mirror and go, it's not what I see. Yeah. Now, will you have to continue hormones for the rest of your life? Yeah. So, um, hormones, um, you do have to continue for the rest of your life if you don't want to backslide. Um, if you want to stop or have to take less of the testosterone blockers, some trans people do get um, orchiectomies, which is a removal of the testicles because that stops testosterone from being produced. Of course, bottom surgery also accomplishes the same thing. Um, but as far as estrogen and progesterone, yes, I probably will be taking estrogen and progesterone for the rest of my life. And did you have knowledge of all of these things and like medical procedures and options and all this stuff before you started transitioning? Um, certainly by the time I actually pulled the trigger, but there was definitely months of research and a lot of like, let's look at before and afters to see like, cause I'm 33. Is this really going to work? Like, cause the later you start the, the, you know, the chances of bigger results are lessened. Right. That makes sense. So going back to theater, were you doing a performance when COVID happened? Uh, I was not. I had just recently finished um, working at the National Yiddish Theater in here in New York in a play called uh, Der Kishif Machrin, which is the sorceress. Uh, if you want to see an 1800s operetta in Yiddish, that was the place to be. It was a fun show, but, you know, uh, a hard sell to some people. Um. So I just gotten done doing that where I was understudying a character, the witch, which is played by a man. Um, so that was interesting. That that was the last thing I had done. Um, the weeks leading up to the pandemic, I had so many callbacks. It's probably like the most callbacks I'd ever had in my life. And I was I had not gotten the contract for this gig, but it was really in a spot where like the artistic director was like contacting me and being like, seeing, are you still interested? We're seeing what this pandemic thing is doing before we're sending out contracts. Um, so I was very likely to play um, uh, the title role in Young Frankenstein, the musical, which would have been my first lead as a union member um and well i don't think i'm going to be playing that role anytime soon <laughs> was there um did like that show come back like post or wherever we are in this pandemic no they a lot of theaters did um end up like just doing whatever season they canceled but that theater did not do that show. Um, did a completely new season. In fact, I don't think they've done a complete true season. Uh, the summer was also a little bit of a wash. 
What is the theater scene currently like now compared to pre-pandemic? Um, I think theaters are trying. There's a lot of regional theaters that I'm sure have shuttered. Broadway is just barely getting back on its feet. And even in doing so, as much as we spent all of the pandemic being like, these things are going to be better. Theater is going to be better. The world's going to be better. This and that. We're going to be more inclusive and progressive. Theater came back with the exact same shows that were open before the pandemic. Some shows that had closed just a month or two before the pandemic because they weren't good or had run their course, they brought back because they were like, <laughs> they didn't want it. They were too afraid. Like I said, producers generally don't have a backbone. Um, the Broadway League is made of a lot of old white men who love their money and don't want to risk losing a penny of it. So they generally go for um, easy wins. Um, within the national tour scene, some most tours are back, it seems. I know a lot of them have new precautions now, new... Um, things in place, more understudies, more swings, so that if someone does catch COVID, they'll leave them in the city that they're in to quarantine for two weeks while the show moves on, and then they'll fly them back out to catch up. Um, that's got to be costing a lot more money for these um, touring companies. Um, regional theater... I know a lot of people, especially in non-union work, I don't know if it's because these non-union theaters are not keeping up with the codes that they should be keeping up with um, as far as COVID safety, but I've had s numerous friends go out to shows, mostly non-union shows, and end up getting sent back home because everyone caught COVID. Yeah, that's not really ideal. No. And are you currently auditioning for shows or are you waiting? I'm currently auditioning. Um, I have a new agent who is uh, specializes in trans and non-binary talent. Um, auditioning for a lot more TV and film work than I ever have. Um, I... Currently, I'm in talks for something that I'm wanted for in this theater. Um, well, I, I can't talk too much on it because, you know, a contract has not been offered. But seems like a fun show. Seems like as long as they can pay the equity rate to me, the union rate, it will be mine. Fingers crossed. Um, but yeah, that's where I'm at with that. Nice. Well, I hope that it truly works out. So do I. <laughs> and what is kind of the logistical difference between being in a union for theater and not? So non-union, you have no protections. Like none. Unless, unless it's a federal protection, you don't have it. Even some of those, it's kind of like, 
your hours often end up when you put them together, you're making under the minimum wage uh, in a lot of non-union theaters. When I did non-union tours, um, there were times the bus would break down and they would, we would end up at shows with no rest and no time to unpack our stuff after traveling for 12 hours. And, you know, at least in the union, when that stuff happens, they have to pay you like, you know, to make up for that. Um, blunder um we didn't have any of those sorts of protections i mean i hurt my back on a non-union show and it is still busted to this day because they would not take care of it um so yeah the pay is generally less the you don't pay into um health care or anything like that in non-union work um of course, it can be a little bit easier to get depending upon the theater. You know, if a theater is in a certain area and only requires, you know, a certain level of professionalism, if they're casting a lot of locals, um, it's a little bit easier, I think, to find work as non-union um, because those theaters can pay anything as opposed to you know larger theaters that are union have to pay a lot more so they are um they seem to be less abundant sometimes than the non-union theaters or at least like almost equal in number um and i think the biggest issue between being union and non-union is your ability for up upward mobility as non-union is not a lot you know you're just basically going regional theater to regional theater you know they might be getting better and the theaters might be getting better the roles might be getting better maybe the pay is getting better but you know there's definitely a certain threshold there like i've never i've never heard of a non-union theater paying more than maybe like 700 dollars a week um Meanwhile, the equity minimum on Broadway is almost two thousand. Um, so even seven hundred, seven hundred is a high number. So the upward mobility isn't really there. You also, as non-union, auditioning for union stuff to get that upward mobility is very difficult. Um, there's sort of this catch twenty-two or this like paradox that goes on when you're non-union of, well, how do I become union? You end up in a union show. Well, how do you do that? You audition for union parts at union auditions. Well, how do I get seen at the union auditions? Well, they mostly see just union people. <laughs> so a breaking into the union is very difficult, or I should say was very difficult. They have now made it as of the end of the pandemic. Um, Anybody can join as long as you can prove you have worked a paid job as an actor in theater, um, union or non-union. They say it is to open the union up to people who might not have the privilege to join the union, uh, marginalized communities. However, when you do it at the end of a pandemic, after getting no 
funds put into your union and you do absolutely nothing other than open, opening it up to get more marginalized people seen and cast, it very much seems like a money grab. I don't know a single person in this union who does not see it as a money grab. And I 100% agree the union should be opened um, and it should be opened to one, give us more leverage and power because more members obviously means more power. Um, it should be open so that marginalized groups have access to these shows and access to these roles and all of that. But if you're not doing anything within the audition process or the casting process and letting theaters do whatever they want, nothing's going to change in that way. So did you get into the union before the pandemic? Yes, I got into the union um, working at the um, Yiddish theater. And how how did you end up at the Yiddish theater doing your show like mostly or entirely in Yiddish? I honestly, I think every single time I've ever auditioned for the Yiddish theater, last time was for their big production of um, Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish, which became a big success and went off Broadway, came uptown. Um, but um, I was in final callbacks for that. You know, so they did recognize something in me to begin with. I mean, also, like, if you are Jewish, like, there's a little bit of, there's certainly, like, a little bit of a, an advantage in that might be the look they're going for. And, you know, at the first audition, they always hand you something in Yiddish and ask you to, they'll say it, and then you say it back to them. And being Jewish and having grown up and not a household that spoke Yiddish, but, you know, that used certain Yiddish words and having learned Hebrew, I was familiar with the sound. So him, the director saying something to me, I could very easily repeat it back because I know all those sounds and little intonations from that. Um, I don't even think I went to that audition. Like, I didn't go out that day with the expectation of going to that audition. I think I literally went out for something else and someone was like, are you going for the Yiddish theater? They're down the hall. And I was like, I, I guess, I guess I'm here. <laughs> and now you're in the union. Yeah. <laughs> oh goodness. And they're a wonderful. Don't let me like put that off. They are a wonderful organization. They are wonderful to work with. It was not something that was on my radar in any way, shape or form. Right. And that's, that's completely okay. I didn't mean yeah. to like, Make it sound super negative either. Yeah, it was. I was mostly me. <laughs> Earlier, you mentioned that you have a podcast, and I uh -huh. believe it is theater based. Yes. So, can you talk a little bit about your podcast? And of course, I will leave it in the description along with your yeah. TikTok and anything else you would like. Uh, my podcast is called Flop of the Heap, as in top of the heap, but flop of the heap. Um, and we just cover sort of like an armchair analysis of all the biggest failures in Broadway history. You know, shows that closed after a night, a week, whatever, lost millions upon millions of dollars. Usually there's either some sort of backstage drama that was involved or um, just very poor decision making um, within the material itself. So it's just us kind of talking about those shows, their history and, you know, joking back and forth about it. Um, kind of is like a normalizing failure sort of thing. 
Um, yeah, I mean, we continue to do it. It's fun. It's a fun listen. Um, if you like B movies, like this might be like the sort of, if you like theater, you like B movies, like this might be your sort of thing where you get to experience these oftentimes unbelievable blunders. Um, if you're the sort of person who's like, I only want to listen to the things that are completely 100% positive at all times, maybe not the podcast for you. Uh, that sounds really great. So we're coming up to the end of this episode, but I do want to make sure I give you a chance if there's anything else that you would like to share about yourself or theater that you have the opportunity to do that now. I just would say, listen to marginalized people. When they tell you something is wrong, or it is hurtful, or it is causing even indirect pain to their community, understand that when I try to explain to you why saying acting is acting, or the best actor should get it, is just a very privileged take being taken from someone who being given by someone who doesn't have the life experience or the vantage point to see it. Just understand and accept that. You know, a lot of cishet people, no matter how much they are allies, oftentimes don't have the ability to see things through a trans lens. Um, same goes for any marginalized group uh, often has to deal with this. And I would just say, if you want to be a good ally, just listen and accept that you might not be able to intrinsically understand or give a valid opinion on this topic. Um, also support trans actors financially, um, either directly or organizations that do so. See any, the rare instance that there is a transgender person in a show, go see that person. Don't support shows that trans people say are hurtful. Do your research before you give your money to something. Um, and I would say just generally talk with your friends and post on social media about these issues if you really care. Because if allies are not spreading the word and explaining it to other allies, a lot of people who are not so much allies are going to just see it as us, you know, wanting to be treated special or get special, something special. I mean, that's always the first thing people jump to, not realizing that they as cishet or, you know, in the case is of racism, if they're white, not realizing that they are the ones getting the special treatment. We are just asking to be the system to be as equal for us and as equitable for us as it is for them. And that's such a great place to wrap things up on and very well said. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You're welcome. Not the... I've been talking about this stuff a lot. <laughs> of course, yes. 
Now, at the end of every episode, I do ask a random question. Cool. Um, so my question for you is, what is your favorite flower? Rye. <laughs> it's actually... It's actually a sunflower, but I actually like my original answer. All right, that brings this episode to a close. As I mentioned, I will be leaving links in the description for Marla, for their TikTok, and a Spotify link to their podcast. And I will also be leaving her Instagram, which is the same username as TikTok, making it easy. Uh, for us there. And of course, if you'd like to connect with the podcast, our website is in the description as well. That brings you to all of our social media. So feel free to go follow those pages, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And if you'd like to be a guest, I'd love to have you. So you can get the email for the podcast in the description as well, along with information on how to support the podcast monetarily. So thank you so much, Marla, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time, bye. Say good night, Gracie. Good night, Gracie.